Good evening, everyone, and a warm welcome to tonight's conversation on Trinity Lutheran and the future of public funding for religious entities. My name is Daniel Rodriguez. I'm, and it says here, one or two sentences here about yourself. <laughs> one sentence. I have the privilege of being at the Dean of Northwestern uh, School of Law, and I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for inviting me uh, to be here. I want to begin by acknowledging tonight's hosts and sponsors, the Lumen Christi Institute for Catholic Thought, whose name you'll see on the front of your programs, conceived the idea for this discussion, and it is the primary sponsor uh, to lead the efforts to sponsor it. I want to uh, 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 please join me in a round of applause for their <laughs> Many thanks to our friends at Jenner and Block in Chicago who are so generously hosting this, uh, this event in their beautiful conference room. The leadership of the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago has been instrumental in planning tonight's discussion, and the Guild is also generously hosting our post-program reception. The Decalogue Society, I think I, I hope I pronounced that right, apologies if I haven't. The Decalogue Society of Lawyers has arranged for attorneys attending this program to receive a minimum continu continuing education credit for their participation. I also want to thank those co-sponsoring organizations which assisted in publicizing our event, the Christian Legal Society, the American Constitution Society, the Federal Society, and Rick Garnett's Notre Dame program on church, society, church, state, and society. Thank you for all playing your part in bringing us together for tonight. Our speakers this evening are two great legal experts. I want to go off script and say, we're here in the Midwest, but you could go any place in the country in the world and not find two greater experts and, and great legal scholars on this topic. So you are in for a great, great treat. Uh, 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 believe me, believe me, as we say. <laughs> Richard W. Garnett is the Paul J. Sherrill. Fort Howard Corporation Professor of Law and Concurrent Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. He is a leading authority on questions and debates regarding the role of religious believers and beliefs in politics and society. He has published widely on these matters, is the author of dozens of law review articles, book chapters, and he contributes to several law-related blogs, including, and I highly recommend, The Mirror of Justice and Prof's blog. His current research project, Two There Are, Understanding the Separation of Church and State, will be published soon by Cambridge University Press. My colleague Andrew Koppelman is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, where he received the 2015 Walter Walter Award for Research Excellence. His scholarship focuses on issues at the intersection of law and political philosophy. His latest books are The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform and Defending American Religious uh, Neutrality. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention a very important book on libertarian uh, legal theory that he may mention as uh, uh, in the course of tonight's event. He has also published more than 100 articles and books and scholarly journals. Professor Garnett will speak for the first several minutes summarizing the case, Trinity Lutheran, and commenting on the implications of various justices' legal reasoning. Professor Koppelman will then offer his commentary for a few minutes, after which we will have 15 minutes for questions and answers. So on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute and our other co-sponsors, please join me in welcoming Rich, Rick Garnett and Andrew Copper. And it says Rick will begin after the applause, so that's now. Okay. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. I know you're busy. You have uh, real law jobs, and uh, it's very generous of you to join us here tonight. Uh, it's a real treat for me to be participating in something organized by Lumen Christi. I've been a big fan of their excellent work for a long time. I want to uh, myself go off script a little bit, kind of a frolic and detour, and um, uh, tip my hat to my friend Andy Koppelman. I've been reading and learning from and arguing with Andy uh, for 
pretty close to 20 years now. Uh, I didn't have hair even then. Um, he's, he's, uh, he started as a sparring partner. He became a mentor, and, and now we're good friends. I was at an uh, event in D.C. a couple of days ago commemorating John Courtney Murray's, uh, the 50th anniversary of John Courtney Murray's death. And uh, Murray had a famous line where he, he said, I think he stole it from someone else, that civilization is men and women locked together in argument. And one of the things we were reflecting on is how we have so many more avenues for yelling at each other, but it doesn't seem like we're actually arguing all that much. I mean, in order to argue, you have to kind of have a shared commitment to discourse, to the idea that truth matters and answers are interesting. Uh, you have to have a shared commitment to, to good faith. And one of the great things about being an interlocutor with, um, with Andy is he's all about the arguments. He's not about the Twitter memes. Um, for Andy, it's about the right, it's about the right answer. And it's not about performance art or virtue signaling. And um, if Andy disagrees with you, it's a good sign that you probably got to check your premises and, and check your steps. So I'm, I'm really grateful to uh, to him for being here. So our topic today, again, as you've heard, was last June's uh, church-state blockbuster in uh, Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. Uh, the plan is to have a conversation and not for me to deliver a lecture. So I'll try to. I'll try to stay with that. I'll talk a bit about the facts and the context of the case and some of the opinions and then uh, share a few thoughts I have about some of the, the implications of the case. So, so what would we do without the Supreme Court? Who would tell us without the Supreme Court what is the nature of golf or the nature of the Internet or indeed the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? And who would tell us, as the Chief Justice did last uh, June, that, quote, youngsters often fall on the playground or tumble from the equipment, and when they do, gravel can be unforgiving. So, I mean, who knew, right? Uh, and, and who says the conservative justices don't have empathy? You can feel the, you can feel the empathy. Um, well, in order to reduce the risk to youngsters' knees and elbows, uh, the Trinity Lutheran uh, Church Child Learning Center applied in 2012 for a grant from something called Missouri's Scrap Tire Program that was run by the Department of Natural Resources. And the purpose of this program is to reduce used tires in landfills so the program reimburses qualified nonprofits that buy playground surfaces. You've seen these uh, in parks, I'm sure. They buy playground surfaces that are made from the recycled tires. So safe knees, empty landfills, uh, sustainability, everybody wins. Um, Trinity Lutheran's application, though, for reimbursement was denied. Uh, and its application was denied, everybody agreed, for one reason only, and that is that Trinity Lutheran is a church. Um, its application in terms of the objective criteria that are used for handing out the money was rated as being fifth out of the 44 that came in. But under Missouri's rule, in the words of Chief Justice Roberts, no churches need apply. Now, Missouri said that this strict policy of excluding uh, churches from the category of eligible beneficiaries, this policy was required by Missouri's own constitution. Missouri has a provision in its, its constitution, uh, which goes back to 1875 at least, um, that prohibits any public money from going, quote, directly or indirectly in aid of any church, sect, or denomination of religion. And Missouri understood that uh, provision to mean that they couldn't reimburse the church for the money it spent on these uh, these tires. So Trinity Lutheran, in the best American tradition, filed a lawsuit. 
claiming a violation of the free exercise clause and citing a number of Supreme Court precedents that stand basically for the proposition that the government's not allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion. The uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals eventually uh, disagreed with Trinity Lutheran's argument, relying on a Supreme Court case called Locke versus Davey that I'll talk about in a bit. The Eighth Circuit said, look, Missouri, if it wanted to, could reimburse Trinity Lutheran for this expense. The Establishment Clause didn't prohibit it, but the court insisted the Constitution didn't require this affirmative uh, act of funding, that the, the state had, as the court has put it in other uh, instances, some play in the joints, some leeway. It could fund, but it didn't have to. Well, the Supreme Court granted cert uh, on January 15th, uh, 2016, and then one month later, Justice Scalia died. And a lot of people wondered, well, what does this mean for the outcome of this case? Some people thought that Trinity Lutheran would become one of these kind of 4-4 uh, miscues where the court's not able to actually resolve the dispute. Um, as it happened, oral arguments were not held until April 19th. Uh, about two weeks after the confirmation of Justice Neil Gorsuch and, of course, some other things that happened uh, in the interim. Um, for me, biographically, or autobiographically, I guess, it was a real kind of excitement when the court took this case because I had, as a, a young associate at a law firm in Washington, I'd filed a cert petition with a professor, uh, a guy in Minnesota named Michael Stokes Paulson, trying to get the court to take pretty much this same issue. That is, the question whether states were permitted by the free exercise clause to exclude religious entities from general benefits. And of course, we were fabulously unsuccessful, and the court had no interest in our petition. But finally, after almost 20 years in Trinity Lutheran, the court was going to hear the case. And by a 7-2 to two vote, to the surprise of some, the court agreed that Missouri's categorical exclusion did violate the free exercise clause. As the Chief Justice put it, quote, the exclusion of Trinity Lutheran solely because it is a church is odious to our Constitution and cannot stand. He said the Establishment Clause does not require Missouri to deny the funding. That is, it doesn't require what he called Missouri's, quote, policy preference for ultra-strict separation. And he added, and this was the more controversial point, he said the Constitution doesn't even permit Missouri to decide that it wants to play a stricter separation game than the Constitution requires. Uh, there were three short concurring opinions by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Breyer, and one long dissent by Justice Sotomayor. Uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissent was longer than the other opinions combined. Um, she read it from the bench, and had it been a Scalia opinion, the press would have called it bittery or fire, fiery, uh, but more about these opinions in a minute. The key move in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was to distinguish this case I mentioned a few minutes ago called Locke versus Davey. So in Locke versus Davey, the court had said, it's okay for Washington State to tell an otherwise eligible uh, college scholarship uh, recipient, you can't keep the scholarship if you major in devotional theology. So the, the, the young student had said, this is discrimination on the count of religion. And the Supreme Court said, no, look, we're letting you have the money. We're letting you take it to a religious school. You can study religion if you want to. You just can't major in devotional theology. And that opinion was written by the late Chief Justice Rehnquist. And he pointed to a long historical tradition of um, American governments being squeamish about paying for the training of clergy. And so the, the, people disagree about how airtight this reasoning was. But the, the, the old chief's um, basic point was, 
the Constitution leaves the states some flexibility between what the Establishment Clause forbids and what the Free Exercise Clause requires. Missouri, understandably, relied on that case. Right? They said, look, Washington was allowed to engage in kind of ratcheting up the separation meter. Uh, why can't we? And uh, the seven justices in the majority, again, the opinion for the court written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, said no. And the key move on the part of the Chief Justice was to say, in Locke v. Davey, we said it was okay for the state to decide not to fund particular uses of money, right? training for the ministry. What's happening here, though, what Missouri's doing, is not focusing in on the use that the money's going to go to, but it's discriminating entirely on the basis of what he called status, religious status or identity. Right? The idea is that um, uh, Trinity Lutheran is being kind of put to a choice. Give up your religious character or give up benefits to which you are otherwise entitled. And he said that, that choice is impermissible. And so uh, Missouri's application of its rule was held to violate the Free Exercise Clause. So if the key move in the case was this distinguishing of Locke v. Davey, the mysterious moment in the case is, this, uh, is a footnote, which is always fun when the Supreme Court uh, gives you these footnotes so law professors can have jobs. Um, this is uh, footnote three, which reads in its entirety, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. So what does that mean? Um, it's not entirely clear. On the one hand, it's an utterly unremarkable fact that the case involves a certain set of facts and the courts resolving the questions that are presented in that particular case. But a lot of people have read that footnote as suggesting that the court is not particularly energetic to extend this non-discrimination principle uh, into other contexts. However, and here's where things get fun, only four justices join that footnote. Justices Thomas and Gorsuch explicitly reject it. And so we're going to have to stay tuned and see whether, again, the, the, the broad principle in Trinity Lutheran is applied in other contexts or whether it's limited in kind of a ticket for this day only sort of thing to cases involving uh, tires and, and playgrounds. Justice Gorsuch, uh, in his concurring opinion, addressed precisely this matter. Um, he said, first, Look, this opinion is not limited to playgrounds. So lower courts, don't, we're not going to create a special realm of, of uh, playground law. Right? Uh, apply the non-discrimination principle more generally. As he put it, our cases are governed by general principles and not ad hoc improvisations. He also expressed some concern about this sharp distinction between the uses of funds and the identity of the funding recipients. As he put it, Lutherans do Lutheran things. It's free exercise either way. So that's another thing that we're going to be uh, needing to look for in future cases. I'll say something just really quickly about the other uh, opinions um, so I don't cross over from conversation to lecture. Um, Justice Thomas wrote a short concurring opinion saying, just so we're clear, Lockby Davy was also wrong. Or as he put it, it, it remains troubling. Uh, Justice Breyer wrote a short concurrence emphasizing that this case is about the health and safety of children. It falls into the category of for the children law. And so uh, he was clearly suggesting that we, uh, signaling, I think, his view that uh, this principle shouldn't necessarily apply in, in broader context. One of the interesting things that happened in the oral argument was that um, Justice Breyer was, was sort of wrestling with the state's position. And he, he asked, um, so you say you can't fund any churches at all. What if, 
what if a church is burning down? You know, can, can the fire truck go and put out the fire? It's a classic hypo. It's been, it's, the Supreme Court's been kicking this around for 80 years. If you're the lawyer for the state, hint, hint, don't say, that's right, the fire truck can't go put out the fire at the church. But that's pretty much what Missouri's lawyer did, which pretty much deep-sicked their chances with, um, with uh, Justice Breyer, I think. Uh, I already mentioned Justice Sotomayor's uh, dissent, which Justice Ginsburg joined. Um, she saw this not as a kind of narrow ruling about playgrounds and, uh, and tires, but she saw this as, quote, profoundly changing the relationship between church and state, in her view, not for the better. Uh, two main points, really two whole opinions packed into one. Uh, she said the Establishment Clause shouldn't even permit this aid, but even if it permits it, the Constitution does permit the state of Missouri to adopt a more separationist pose. Uh, and then she had a long discussion of sort of the history of various state provisions denying funding uh, to religious entities. Okay, so that's kind of how I see the, the, um, the facts and context of the case. Let me just highlight four quick sort of questions about the case's implications or its meaning. Uh, first, the elephant in the room, in the courtroom and still today, uh, is the implications of this ruling for school choice programs. Uh, as many of you in this room know, the Supreme Court uh, ruled 15 years ago, five to four, in a case called Zellman, that school choice programs can be permissible. Since that time, the question has been, does the Constitution permit states to set up uh, private tuition scholarship programs or tax credit programs and then exclude religious schools from participating? Um, no justice in Trinity Lutheran explicitly, anyway, Justice Sotomayor might have implicitly challenged it, but every justice appeared to agree that school choice programs may be constitutional if they're designed properly. But now the question is, given that Trinity Lutheran has said discrimination against religious entities, and indeed against religious schools and the provisions of benefits, violates the free exercise clause, does this mean that every school choice program must allow religious schools to participate on an equal uh, footing? Uh, I, I'm inclined to think that would be a good policy result, but it would be quite a striking thing, it would be interesting historically, if we moved from having had, a, in the 1970s, a kind of pretty rigid, strict separation that where you know, the court would prohibit uh, schools from getting like um, books of maps or whatever, uh, if we were to move from that to a situation where the aid was required. So if school choice is the elephant in the room, um, I'm going to do another bad cliche here, the dog that didn't bark was the constitutionality of Missouri's so-called Blaine Amendment. That's the constitutional provision that denies the funding. Um, some of you are probably familiar with this history. I'm gonna, I'm gonna offend anybody who's a historian in this room and be really quick about it, but there's long been uh, a contention in the academic literature that these Blaine Amendments should be seen as part of a uh, kind of a paranoid reaction to, um, uh, to Catholic immigration. That, that there was a widespread sense in the latter part of the 19th century that there was something inconsistent with Catholicism and American freedom, with democracy and Catholic schools. And so you'll, it's easy that you can, you can find lots and lots of quotes from prominent politicians, including U.S. Grant and others, to the effect that if we want to save our democracy, we have to worry about uh, what, what's going on in Catholic schools, and indeed we have to channel these immigrants into the common schools, which will make them into good Americans. Um, I'm convinced that that kind of thinking is at least part of the reason why these Blaine Amendments exist in as many states as they do. The justices know this history. 
mainly because obnoxious law professors and amicus briefs keep telling them about it, like, like me. Um, and they completely ignored it in this case. Um, there is not a single mention in either of the opinions of the controversy about the sort of motives behind the Blaine Amendment. Some, some people had argued that, that the anti-Catholic purpose of the Blaine Amendment makes them unconstitutional, in a kind of like the argument that the um, motives that President Trump's tweets suggest make uh, the travel ban unconstitutional. But again, the justices didn't address this argument, even though they're aware of it um, at all. You know, once I got over my wounded pride as an academic, maybe that's for the best. Um, I've been coming around to the view, and we can talk about this later if anybody's interested, that maybe it makes more sense to focus on legislative outputs and effects and less on trying to look for bad motives on the part of legislators and government actors. As my, uh, my friend and Andy's friend Steve Smith says, you don't want judicial doctrine that encourages what he calls a discourse of disrespect. And maybe, maybe arguments that focus on purpose do that. The third issue that for me really jumps out of Trinity Lutheran is the claim that some of the amicus briefs made, which goes something like this, um, the reason you can't fund schools like Trinity Lutheran is because they discriminate. We know that even if Trinity Lutheran seems kind of nice, that a lot of religious schools out there engage in religious discrimination or other forms of discrimination. Uh, a particular concern to these brief writers was the possibility that these schools might discriminate in hiring or firing uh, on the grounds of uh, LGBT status and other things. And so the argument was made in briefs that if the state funds schools that discriminate, they're effectively discriminating, and that makes it unconstitutional. That's a very far-reaching argument with huge implications. Uh, the court didn't address it. I hope if they ever do, they'll reject it. But that's certainly something that's kind of uh, waiting in the wings. And then finally, um, and again, I apologize if this is a bit abstract, but I think just, uh, Justice Gorsuch was on to something when he suggested that it might be a mistake to put too much weight on this identity status versus use and conduct distinction. Because it is true that one of the things that being a religious person, he, he used the example, of course it's used the example of a Lutheran, but religious people do religious things, right? To, to be a person of faith, or for that matter, to be a religious institution is not just to have an identity or a status, it's to do certain things, right? It's to have a mission. Uh, religious believers often talk about uh, their faith in terms of their identity, but they mean more than that. They mean more than a box checking. They mean that it, it infuses and animates the way that they act and the things that they, um, their goals, the things they aspire to do. And so I suspect that Justice Gorsuch is right, that we're not going to be able to make that distinction do uh, too much work. But uh, one of the things you might look for in this year's Law and Religion um, marquee case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, is whether there's any discussion of this issue of identity and uh, conduct. And with that, I will turn it over to Professor Koppelman. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to disagree with Rick about uh, uh, celebration of the result in Trinity Lutheran. I'm going to fret and worry, uh, and I'm going to try to persuade you to fret and worry as well. Uh, so government grants for playground surfaces are the, if I can use my own metaphor, the tip of a large iceberg. Uh, the state distributes money for a huge variety of purposes, and it always imposes conditions. It can't just hand out cash to anyone who wants it. 
Uh, so, of course, playgrounds should have rubber surfaces. But there are two important facts in the Trinity Lutheran case that won't always be true in funding cases. First of all, the criterion for the grant was devised on the basis of considerations that were entirely related to religion. That's why it was possible to generate a score where the church was fifth of 44 applicants. And second, the grant involved very little discretion by the administrator. Now, those two things won't always be the case. Funding formula can be manipulated in order to favor certain applicants and disfavor others. And some funding is entirely discretionary. I'm on a theater board in Evanston trying to get arts grants, and oh boy, you know, any reason at all. Uh, in both of those ways, government can use its power of funding to favor some views over others and to favor some religious views over others. The court's opinion, and even more the concurring opinions of Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, are oblivious to these dangers. They all think that the unrestricted availability of funding is unambiguously good news for religion. If there's a dominant theme in the three opinions, it's that government can't discriminate against religion as such. So Roberts' opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts for the court, rejects laws, quote, that single out the religious for disfavored treatment. Uh, so a presumption of unconstitutionality, strict scrutiny applies to any law that impose, quote, imposes a penalty on the free exercise of religion. So the exercise of religion is punished when religious entities are denied the right to compete on an equal footing for government funding. And Justice Thomas likewise condemns laws that facially discriminate against religion. Justice Gorsuch agrees that free exercise principles do not permit discrimination against religious exercise. So how broad is this pan on discrimination against religion? Let's imagine that a town has, let's call it, the board for subsidizing good things. Seems like a good idea. I hope you're in favor of good things. Uh, so it's, there's, uh, the fund is to support activities that are, in the board's judgment, good. And any entity can apply for funds on the grounds that they will be spent on good things. Well, churches want to be eligible for this kind of support, right? They do good things. They are good things. They try to help their parishioners be good people. Barring churches from seeking that funding would be discrimination against religion. You mustn't do that. Uh, you might even call it a penalty on free exercise. So suppose the churches are eligible and every church in town applies, and the Baptists get the money and the Catholics don't. Now, the board, like many entities that allocate public funds, arts councils, uh, and so forth, they have no obligation to explain funding decisions. Maybe the you know, Baptists are somehow more conducive to good things than the Catholics. Might be based on theological views, or maybe one church's leaders support the mayor's re-election and the other one doesn't. Uh, the might be other reasons. Who knows? The trouble with the court's opinion is that it doesn't seem to even think about these dangers. And in fairness, they aren't much emphasized in Justice Sotomayor's dissent. She does say that the majority, I'm quoting, permits direct subsidies for religious indoctrination with all the attendant concerns that led to the Establishment Clause, and it favors certain religious groups, those with a belief system that allows them to compete for public dollars and those well-organized and well-funded enough to do so successfully. Uh, she writes, the Establishment Clause protects both religion and government from the dangers that result when the two become entwined. She could say more than she does about what those dangers are. So why do we got the Establishment Clause in the first place? 
Uh, a very common answer, I think what's now the dominant answer in uh, discourse, is the importance of avoiding religious conflict and alienation of religious minorities. Uh, you know, the reason why people emphasize this reading of the Establishment Clause is because they haven't read Rick Garnett, <laughs> who has written the classic article showing that Division is a familiar fact of democratic politics. It is uh, it's very common. People complain about how divided we are now on politics. Welcome to America. In fact, welcome to Earth. That's what politics is like. It's not unique to religion. A better account of the Establishment Clause that focuses on religion in particular is the idea that religion can be corrupted by state involvement with it. It's an idea that's friendly to religion, but precisely for that reason is determined to keep the state away from religion. So let me take a few minutes to explore that idea because I think that's relevant here. Uh, it's at least as old as Jesus Christ's insistence on distinguishing the things that are Caesar's from the things that are God's. Uh, and you Lots of examples. John Milton thought that uh, elevating uh, the state support elevates the civil power over God. Uh, and so uh, upon her whose only heaven head is in heaven, putting what is most monstrous, a human on a heavenly, a carnal on a spiritual, a political head on an ecclesiastical body. That idea in the 1600s persists. Uh, Roger Williams thought that subjecting religion to temporal power was to pull God and Christ and spirit out of heaven. Locke argued that no man can, if he would, conform his faith to the dictates of another, and that state coercion could only produce hypocrisy and contempt of his divine majesty. Uh, Jefferson declared that in his bill for establishing religious freedom, that almighty God hath created the mind free, and all attempts to influence it tend to only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness. Uh, establishment tends also to corrupt the principles of the very religion it's meant to encourage by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and emoluments those who will externally profess and conform to it. Uh, I could go on and on, but I'll end with uh, the author of the First Amendment, James Madison, uh, who uh, argued against a general funding of, tried to fund religions equally with an assessment in support of churches. Uh, he thought that the idea that the civil magistrate as a competent judge of religious truth is an arrogant pretension falsified by the contradictory opinions of rulers in all ages. And the idea that we want to support religion because it conduces to good citizenship he thought was an attempt to employ religion as an engine of civil policy, which he thought was an unhallowed perversion of the means of salvation. Now, the strong separationism of the Warren Court, I should understand the rule that uh, the state was adopting in the Trinity Lutheran case was the law of the Establishment Clause for some time. So what the grant the Trinity Lutheran was applying for would have been barred by the Establishment Clause in the 1970s. The court has shifted since then. Uh, so the court also says uh, that uh, the uh, reason why the state can't uh, involve itself with religion, for example, and it's I guess probably most famous church state decision saying that the state could not uh, have non-sectarian prayers in schools is that uh, the uh, 
First and most immediate purpose of the Establishment Clause rested on a belief that the union of government and religion tends to destroy government and degrade religion. The Establishment Clause stands as an expression of principle on the part of the founders that religion is too personal, too sacred, too holy to permit its unhallowed perversion by a civil magistrate. Uh, it's remarkable to find this kind of prophetic language in the US reports. Sacred and holy, there's something fundamentally impious about establishment. Uh, and uh, the author of the opinion, Hugo Black, uh, the, uh, Rick talked about uh, the role of anti-Catholic bigotry in the Blaine Amendment, and I agree with him that it was there. Uh, it's also uh, clear that it was there in the opinions of Hugo Black, who wrote the opinion in that case. Uh, he sometimes cited the egregious Paul Blanchard, who uh, made claims about preposterous claims about Catholicism, uh, which were about as bad as the claims that uh, some people, including certain high office holders, make about Islam. Uh, equally ignorant and equally invidious. Uh, but that wasn't the only account of his separationism. Uh, he, I think he really thought that uh, here there was something uh, impious about the state getting involved in the activity of prayer. So the reason why the court adopted this no funding rule was to prevent corruption of religion. The court didn't think it was being unfriendly to religion. The court thought that it was protecting religion. It was afraid that any financial support for religion invited the possibility of manipulation. So in Lemon versus Kurtzman, the court uh, invalidated laws that reimbursed private schools, which were mostly Catholic, for the salaries of teachers. And the court explained any direct aid in cash or kind to the educational mission of such schools would inevitably involve the state as a subsidizer of religious indoctrination or would produce excessive entanglement between public officials and representatives of the religious schools. Now, as it played out, this separationism reached indefensible results. Uh, and I think that the court was right to abandon it. The low point was a case in 1985 called Aguilar versus Felton, which held that special education teachers who were paid by the state could not teach in parochial build school buildings because they might be influenced to influence religious content into their work. Uh, now, the danger in that case was minimal, and the effect was to force cities to spend their scarce education funds putting trailers in school parking lots. Uh, and so children attending schools in economically poor neighborhoods in need of remedial education couldn't get that sort of help on school premises from dedicated public employees who had no agenda of religious instruction in mind. This was silly. And the court eventually abandoned this position. It's now upheld funding of private schools, including religious schools, via vouchers, which involved, the court has said, true private choice in which government aid reaches religious schools only as a result of the genuine and independent choices of private individuals. But now some states have their own no funding provisions in their state constitutions. And not all of these were Blaine amendments. Sotomayor cited a number from the founding period. So in Locke versus Davey, that case that uh, said that a state could bar the funding of training to be a member of a clergy, the court cited play in the joints of the religion clauses. But the bottom line seemed to be that the free exercise clause did not forbid a prophylactic rule of separationism, which only a few years earlier the establishment clause had been held to require. I think the court wasn't willing to say, 
uh, that its predecessors were so unreasonable that they were violating the Constitution themselves with the uh, rules that they were imposing on the states. And uh, so Trinity Lutheran essentially abandons that. The Trinity Lutheran says that a rule which was a constitutional requirement in 1985 itself cannot be adopted by the states because it violates the Constitution. Now, when government allocates benefits, this often involves discretion about who gets the money. And so conditional funding's a way for a government to shape civil society and pick winners and losers. Often, this is exactly the right thing to do. Uh, it, you're going to, you shouldn't subsidize all private re group residences, but if they offer heroin rehabilitation treatment, that actually might be a good reason to give them some money. Uh, and it's good for schools to have safe playgrounds. But uh, when the state's been given discretion in the area of religion, the results have not been pretty. In 1983, the court uh, departed from its ordinary separationism and upheld legislative prayers in Marsh versus Chambers. And it cited a long history of such prayers. And no doubt the court thought that by upholding the prayers, it was avoiding a divisive controversy. Uh, the problem is that this relaxation of the neutrality requirement is different from other forms of ceremonial deism, like in God we trust on the currency, because it requires a continual set of discretionary choices. So the issue of prayer now divides municipalities all across the country in a zero-sum battle in which the state ends up deciding disputed points of theology. In the years following Marsh, some jurisdictions have rejected proposed prayers precisely on the basis of their non-majoritarian religious content. So uh, there was one case, it was only because litigation happens that we learned this, it came out in discovery, that one clerk had systematically eliminated Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jews, and Mormons from the list of invited participants. Uh, another re uh, explicitly rejected Wiccans as neo-pagan. And elections have sometimes been fought over whether official prayers should be overtly Christians. And members of clergy have been told to tailor their prayers to make them more likely to be acceptable to authorities. So in deciding who gets to pray and in giving guidelines about what kinds of prayers are acceptable, the government gets to decide which religions are true or at least which are close enough to the truth to be worthy of respect. This is not a happy result. This is not friendly to the free exercise of religion. If this kind of consequence is to be avoided, then some kinds of discrimination against religion is necessary. In politics, various interests come to the state, uh, and they claim that the state's financial support will help them to promote some worthy purposes that the private sector will not provide unaided. And sometimes the, they're right, so this kind of claim is inevitably part of normal politics. But if religious claimants get to come forward making this kind of claim, the state will be empowered precisely in the way the religion clauses forbid. On the issue of school choice, uh, the state uh, can, well, you offer a general voucher. The attraction of vouchers is that the state doesn't pick and choose among the voucher recipients. But uh, the state can impose requirements on the schools and so religious gerrymanders are possible. Even if you say we're only going to fund schools that don't discriminate on the basis of religion and uh, accepting students, some <coughs> schools feel, have religious requirements that they engage in such discrimination. Uh, in some ways, the formation of religious congregations itself depends on discrimination on the basis of religion. Uh, 
and so the dangers are present. So I think the corruption argument remains relevant. If the state gets to declare God's will, we will learn that what God wants above all is the re-election of the incumbent administration. Uh, so uh, if one considers the modern Christmas display paid for by tax dollars secured through the influence of the local merchants association, it reminds us that Christ suffered and died on the cross so that we could enjoy great holiday shopping. You don't have to be religious to find this revolting. Uh, Rick, I think, is drawing the same line. The question is whether it's possible to maintain that line if the courts take as deferential an approach as the court did in Trinity Lutheran. Thank you. I'll be really quick so we can uh, hear from you, but uh, Andy opened up by saying he was going to fret and worry about two things, and I just want to agree entirely that the two things he mentioned are things worth fretting and worrying over. So first, it is true that one of the reasons often uh, given for the American church-state regime is a concern that government support for religion can have this perhaps ironic, perhaps intended effect of co-opting or corrupting religion. That is a real concern. Uh, my view is that the Trinity Lutheran case, and in many instances the Trinity Lutheran principle, um, doesn't present a grave danger of the kind that Andy's describing, but, but it's worth fretting and worrying nonetheless. Uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago John Courtney Murray. Um, in his church-state writings in the late 40s and 50s, he never rejected the idea of the separation of church and state. He was deeply committed to it. Um, but he said uh, a healthy separation between church and state does not rule out what he called friendly cooperation. And it seems to me that there are going to be instances when that friendly cooperation can happen without the kind of corruption that Andy's talking about, but that he's right to worry about. Second thing we all need to worry about, those of us who care about religious freedom and the integrity of religious institutions, are the conditions that come with funds and benefits. Uh, that's, a, that's a real concern. It's been, a, you know, for years in the sort of school choice movement, you, you, people have, um, particularly in the homeschooling movement, have said, we don't, we don't want this, you know, with... Uh, he who pays the piper calls the tune, right? Uh, regulatory strings almost always follow money. And it is worth worrying. It is important to worry about the fact that those strings can not only get the government involved in making decisions we don't want the government to make, like the kind that uh, Andy was talking about, but they can also create this kind of subtle homogenizing or even secularizing pressures on religious schools. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that Catholic schools were probably too quick in the 70s to take these textbook loans where they ended up just basically using all the same textbooks that the public schools did because they needed the books. Um, it's arguable that uh, Catholic schools' distinctive curriculum suffered uh, for that reason. So uh, let's, let's, let's by all means not, not, don't forget to fret and worry about those two things, even as, in my opinion, we should welcome the result in Trinity Lutheran.